The following is presented by the Center for Political Innovation, CPI, Building American Socialism for the 21st Century. To learn more, visit cpiusa.org. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another of our conversations between Hapal Bra and Caleb Morpin. Um, and today, we are going to be talking about the international significance of the October Revolution. You know, we recently passed the 30-year anniversary of the collapse of the Soviet Union, which is a tragedy for the working class and for the world. Um, but of course, it's an opportunity for bourgeois politicians, historians, commentators of all kinds to bring out and rehash all their favorite lies about socialism and about the Soviet Union. Uh, and, you know, so we really feel it's a good opportunity for us to once again set the record straight about just what was the real significance of the October Revolution. And I hope that by the end of today's discussion, you'll appreciate just something of what October meant to the world. Because the reality is, the world has never been the same since the October Revolution. The October Revolution ushered in a new epoch in history, and that epoch is the epoch we are still in and will be in for some time to come, the epoch of socialist revolution. Um, and internationally, not just in the Soviet Union, but internationally, it had a huge effect. Uh, so, Harpal, I'd like you to start us off, if you would, talking a little bit about the effect on the imperialist countries of the October Revolution in 1917. Yes. Hi, both of you. Nice, nice to see you again. Um, well, its international significance is that before the October Revolution, the imperialist countries were so confident that their system could not be challenged. It was there forever. It, it was really going to last till, till eternity. What the October Revolution did was, it put an end to that um, arrogance and that assumption that imperialism and capitalism were here to stay forever. It was the first breach in the imperialist, in, in the imperialist front. And what shook the world was so much was, it was unlike any other revolution, if you exclude, the very brief-lived um, Paris Commune. It was a, the first revolution whereby the new ruling class was not going to be an exploiting class, which replaced old exploiting classes, but it was going to be the working class, which will put an end to all, all exploitation. And that is really why the October Revolution has throughout aroused so much hostility and so much bile has been poured on the October Revolution by the bourgeoisie, by imperialism, and its agents all, all over the world. It's a revolution which is not a Russian revolution, which is not confined to the national boundaries of old Russian empire, but it has far greater significance. It goes far beyond the frontiers of the old Russian empire. It had a worldwide significance. That is why People constantly talk about October Revolution. Even when the Chinese talk of their revolution, they say the salvos of the October Revolution brought socialism to China. Not all countries appreciate that, but that is the truth of the matter, that without the October Revolution, they would have been nowhere. It is something that started a completely new epoch in world history. As you have said rightly, Jyoti, is the epoch of the downfall of imperialism and of proletarian revolution. It may not look like that, 
just as we are talking to each other. But history is like that. Sometimes 30 years pass, as Mark said, nothing happens. And then there come days where in 30 days, those 30 years are on, compressed and take place very, very quickly and take people by surprise, if you like. And that's what the October Revolution actually did. And it will do so because the world has never been the same. Imperialism has not recovered the stability that it enjoyed before the October Revolution. Uh, everywhere there is struggle, even when it's led by very backward people like the Afghan Taliban. I can really relate it to the after effects of the October Revolution, whereby the oppressed people no longer wish to be dominated by imperialism. They take up cudgels against imperialism, even when at a conscious level, they're anti-communist, they are not openly saying that they are for socialism, but nevertheless, they are striking hammer blows at imperialism. And the defeat of the Americans, for example, in Pakistan is a perfectly good example, of, uh, in, in, in Afghanistan is a perfectly good example, as indeed their defeat in Korea and Vietnam be, be, before that. These are events of great significance. Thanks, Dad. Caleb. Oh, well, I'm, if you want to talk about the immediate after effects of the Russian Revolution in the imperialist countries, uh, it's worth noting that we wouldn't have the FBI uh, if it weren't for the Bolshevik Revolution. Uh, because in 1918 in the United States, we had the first Red Scare, uh, and it was following the Russian Revolution. Eugene Debs, the socialist leader, was thrown in prison for giving an anti-war speech. And uh, it was actually a, um, it was a librarian, a congressional librarian, J. Edgar Hoover, uh, who just knew how to scare members of Congress by giving these lectures about communists are coming, the communists, the Reds are coming. And uh, he was good at giving these lectures. And he was then given his own wing of the U.S. Department of Justice, which, you know, was first called the Bureau of Investigation and became the FBI. So, you know, the, the ruling class was so terrified of the Bolshevik Revolution that they formed uh, the, the FBI. The FBI itself was formed in response to the Bolshevik Revolution. And we had the Palmer Raids in the United States where thousands of, uh, of communists uh, and revolutionaries who were not born in the United States were just rounded up in the middle of the night and deported very, very quickly. Um, and there was real terror among the ruling class of the United States about the, uh, the Bolshevik revolution and what it meant. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, the Woodrow Wilson administration, which we're all taught in school in the United States, that he was a progressive, right? He wanted, he wanted the self-determination of countries. He believed in the League of Nations. He was, he was a progressive. He was he was quite a reactionary, number one. I mean, he, he really very much uh, played up, you know, and was, was an ally of, of white supremacists and Ku Klux Klan elements. But also he was very terrified by the, uh, the Russian Revolution and he developed a whole apparatus of political repression in response to it. Um, and, you know, the Communist Party, when it was originally formed, I mean, there were a number of different factions that eventually merged into what became the U.S. Communist Party. Uh, they had to hold their unity convention in 1921 in a, a secret location in the middle of the, the woods in Michigan, um, you know, and even that convention was raided by the, uh, the, the police. And, and there was just real terror in the United States on the part of the ruling class because, you know, there was the time of the Russian Revolution in the United States, there was massive uh, support for it. There were many, many people, uh, you know, dock workers and, and, you know, labor unionists and steel workers and among the African-American community, there were many people who looked to it with great inspiration. 
Um, and so uh, the ruling class was terrified. And I think it's, you know, when you look at what happened in the, in the, in the, towards the end of World War One, in the aftermath of the Russian Revolution, and in the, you know, in 1919, 1920, I mean, the heavy handed political repression we saw was the ruling class responding to this, um, this, this tremendous event, the Bolshevik Revolution, which scared them like nothing else. Absolutely. Um, I think we had something similar, excuse me for butting in a little bit, but we had something similar here. Um, some leading communists like John McLean had been uh, imprisoned during World War I. And then uh, during the war of intervention against the Soviet Union, when I think 14 countries, is that right, Dad? Uh, 14 countries uh, in involved in invading the, the new uh, Soviet Russia and trying to overthrow the socialist government there. And uh, the, the strength of feeling amongst British workers against British involvement in this intervention was so great that dockers refused to load, very famous incident, they refused to load a ship called the Jolly George, which was supposed to be taking war material and I think maybe soldiers as well over to Russia. Um, and there was such a general sense amongst the working class that had been that had been organized by the communists, but this huge swell of sympathy for the new Soviet Republic, for socialism, for workers' government that um, the, the action was backed up by a threat from the Trades Union Congress, which was not a revolutionary organization, but understood the strength, the feeling of its members and was forced to put the threat of a general strike to Lloyd George, the liberal prime minister at the time. And the threat was convincing. It was so convincing that Britain pulled out of that war. And Lloyd George, in fact, started granting sort of um, a few kind of reforms to the working class to try and sort of calm them down. Uh, so again, there were there were big repercussions over here, and our ruling class was very shaken by the support of the workers and by the example that was being given to them. Um, Hapal, would you like to talk to us a bit about um, the impact in the oppressed countries? Because gosh, if it if if it reverberated, you know, in um, in the imperialist countries, how much more so did it reverberate October in the oppressed countries? Well. As you both of, as both of you know very well, uh, the Tsarist Empire had not only the, the great Russian nation in it, but a number of other nationalities, and they were oppressed nationalities. And Lenin rightly said Russia was a prison house of nations. And one of the things that Lenin had the foresight to have in his party's program, over which he fought hard and many people deserted him, including um, such uh, well-known people as Rosa, Rosa Luxemburg, who opposed the clause on the right of self-determination. Um, and Rosa Luxemburg even wrote a pamphlet under a pseudonym called Junius. And Lenin didn't know who Junius was, whether it was a man or a woman, but he assumed it was a man. And he wrote a, a very long article on the Junius pamphlet. So Lenin believed in the right of self-determination of nations, that Russia would, if the Bolsheviks were to come to power, grant the right of self-determination to, to the oppressed nationalities. Lenin was not in favor of separation, but equally he was not in, in the business of keeping nations forcibly within the, within the, uh, the, the Russian, Russian state. He compared it to a divorce. He said, just because you stand for the right of divorce does not mean you are advocating that everybody divorce their spouse. It is just that people should live happily by consent because they're willing and happy to live with each other and not be coerced into, 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 
living in marriages which are unhappy. And this is something which affected women more than, more than men. Women were forced to cohabit with husbands who just did not meet the civilized stand, standards, if, if you like. So he said, we are in favor of the right to divorce, but we're not asking everybody to, do, to divorce their, their, their partners. Likewise, within the state, when there is a multinational state, the nation should be given the right of self-determination. Self and after the October Revolution, that's precisely what, what went on, but it's a complicated history, how they rejoined and made their own revolution that joined the Russian Federation, which became the great and glorious USSR, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. And what is important here is, by after the October Revolution, by freeing these na 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 nations, Russia sent, set a very contagious example, just as the October Revolution had sent a, a, a contagious message to the working class in the imperialist countries. We, by overthrowing the bourgeoisie in one of the largest imperialist countries, have come to power. You can do it too. And you can see why the Bolsheviks were hated by the imperialist bourgeoisie. And by freeing these nations, um, when most of the world was under colonial domination, under one uh, imperialist power or another, Br British, French, German, Dutch, Portuguese, whatever uh, you, you, can, you can think of. It sent a contagious example that the people of these colonies can free themselves. And what's more, what, what it did was, it actually freed these nations that were part of the former um, Russian Empire, not under the flag of nationalism, not under the flag of enmity, but under the flag of proletarian internationalism. Here is the Russian working class coming to power and saying, comrades, you can live with us. We want you to live with us. We're happy to live with you, but the decision is, is, is your, your, yours. And so really, it is something unheard of that colonial powers would simply say, okay, you're free. Can you just imagine India saying, being freed by the British saying, well, no, yes, you have the right to freedom. If the British proletariat had come to power, that's precisely what would have happened. And so it was really a clarion call to the working class of Europe to come to power, free themselves from the clutches of imperialism, and free their colonial slaves from the clutches of the, their, their imperialist bourgeoisie. And the flag of proletarian internationalism is so important, so important that workers can actually live together. What divides them is oppression. What divides them is exploitation. Once you take away these factors, people are able, happily to live together. 70 years of the existence of the Soviet Union proved that. The moment the Soviet Union collapsed, the old enmities, the old fights came, came, came into being and hundreds of thousands of people being killed, forced to migrate from one, one, one territory to another. And so, the, you see, before the October Revolution, the world was divided into two categories, inferior races and superior races, blacks and whites. Of these, the former were supposed to be the slaves who were destined forever to serve the master races. And the latter were 
the bearers of civilization. And what the October Revolution proved was that the so-called inferior people, the oppressed nationalities, once they are freed from the clutches of imperialism, are just as much capable of bearing advanced culture, of contributing to the advancement of culture as are the so-called superior nations. So it shattered forever the myth of superior and inferior races. I know it took several decades, decades before the message sunk, but now even imperialist countries have legislation against racial discrimination. They don't actually implement it properly, but nevertheless, they have to pay lip service to the question of equality of races, equality of nations, and the bourgeoisie it comes as near its end. There's a total dichotomy between its language and, the, and its practice. Language has broken all contact with practice. While they continue to oppress, for example, the Americans continue to oppress Muslim people in the Middle East, they are standing up for the rights of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, who allegedly are being oppressed by, 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 by the Chinese. Now, there is no such oppression, but they carry on this thing as though they are somehow the friends of Muslims. They are not friends of any people, oppressed people or foreign people or of their own working class. They are in the business of carrying on with the exploitation and anything that will serve to divide working people this, of course, is, 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 is to, to their advantage. And by setting this example of freeing the, by setting this example of freeing the, uh, the, the uh, uh, colonized people, the Soviets set a contagious example and actually was a call to the oppressed people everywhere to revolt against, against their imperialist masters. So its, its effect is extremely significant. It's difficult to imagine how there would have been a wave of decolonization had it not been for the October Revolution, particularly uh, uh, after the Second World War, by which the Soviet armies had been victorious in Eastern and Central Europe and had defeated the mightiest military power of that time, namely Nazi Germany. Caleb. Oh, wow. Well, um... You know, it's it's a really important point uh, that was made uh, just there about how the Bolsheviks saw themselves as allies of all oppressed people against colonialism um, and against imperialism. Um, you know, I, I've pointed to uh, how, um, and it's been worth discussion recently when it comes to Afghanistan, uh, how the Bolsheviks uh, offered military support uh, to the Emir of Afghanistan when he was fighting the British Empire, and of course, the Emir of Afghanistan was not a, a leftist or a progressive figure by any means, but he was fighting the imperialists. Uh, and so they supported him. And I believe the Bolsheviks convened the Conference of the Peoples of the East, uh, a very important gathering in which they, they met with people from across the Eurasian hemisphere uh, who were opposed to the imperialists and, and offered their support. And that, uh, you know, the Bolsheviks, uh, they also offered uh, military training and support to the Chinese revolution before it became a socialist revolution. Now, when it was originally a, you know, a bourgeois democratic revolution, and Dr. Sun Yat-sen uh, wanted to become a member of the Communist International. Now, Lenin did, you know, said, he's, you're not a Marxist, you, you're not a communist, so you can't join, but you, he even granted him observer status. So Dr. Sun Yat-sen 
uh, the the founder of of you know the Chinese modern China, I guess, and and China's uh, awakening as a country um, was you know someone who was very close to Lenin and attended the gatherings of the Communist International. Um, and what you said about about racism, I mean, it's it's really it's something that I feel like my generation just doesn't appreciate. Now it's just kind of taken for granted. Uh, when we hear these statements about, oh, you know, racism is bad, you know, black and white should be equal. I mean, we, we almost roll our eyes. It's just so standard. It's just so liberal. But no one talked that way before the Russian Revolution. Uh, no one spoke that way. Um, you know, racism was considered to just be an accepted reality. Um, and the Russian Revolution was a huge huge event. And, uh, you know, black liberation activists in the United States, like W.E.B. Du Bois, for example, read the glowing things that he wrote about the Soviet Union, saying the Soviet Union was the only society he'd ever been to where people of one race were not taught uh, to consider themselves superior to people of another race. Um, uh, there's a very important book called Black Bolshevik uh, by Harry Haywood, who was a leader of the U.S. Communist Party. And he describes uh, how he was on the subway uh, in the Soviet Union once during the 1930s. And a drunk person made a racially inappropriate remark and everyone just, you know, exploded against the person. And the person was actually arrested for, for making the comment uh, because that was just so contrary to what the Soviet Union was about. And um, it, it kind of shows that uh, that the world has really changed and the lasting impact uh, of the Bolshevik revolution. I mean, nowadays, I mean, all across the world, there is this feeling that racism is unacceptable. That wouldn't be the case if it weren't for the Russian revolution. So um, people forget that um, and we take it for granted now. And now the imperialists act as if they are the, they are the purveyors of these socially, you know, conscious, you know, the idea that women, women should be equal to men. That was also a big part of the Russian revolution. Uh, and, and, you know, I, a, a lot of, a, a lot of, you know, feelings of, of social justice breaking down, you know, hierarchical, you know, forms of oppression and such, uh, that came out of the Bolshevik revolution. And, and the, the, the imperialists don't remind people of this. And now they actually, uh, they, they try to present themselves as if they are, they're invading countries to liberate the women, or they put sanctions on countries because the country is allegedly, uh, you know, is, is allegedly persecuting some minority or something like that. And, and they try to take on these values that they wouldn't even have if it weren't for the Bolshevik revolution uh, in order to sell their empires. I think that's so important, as you say, Caleb, for people to understand that the imperialists are forced to say these things, which, as Rapal said, are the opposite of how they act, that women are equal, that all, all men are equal, no matter the color of their skin. They're forced to say it because October proved it and imperialists lost the moral high ground. The masses came round to the sentiments of the socialists on all these important topics and it became impossible for the imperialists to talk openly the way they used to. Now they have to hide their real motivations behind these words. But of course, not only does that mean they've had to retreat from what they felt to be their moral high ground, it also means they're constantly caught out in their hypocrisy because their words don't match their deeds. And that's that's weakened them fatally at the heart. You know, we can see that they don't mean what they say when they talk about anti-racism or anti-sexism. And we can see, you know, how how fake it is, this concern for human rights when you're bombing everybody into smithereens, you know. Um, I wondered, Hapal, if you could talk a little bit about the example uh, of building this completely new society sort of had for the oppressed classes around the world to actually see this new world being built in the Soviet Union? Well, before the October Revolution, and even after the October Revolution, the, the, the refrain of the imperialist bourgeoisie was, yes, the working class 
may be able to destroy, but it can never build because construction can only take place under the tutelage of the bourgeoisie. Nobody else can build. Now, one day we will talk extensively about it on another occasion, but the Soviet Union, after uh, the civil war had, had, and the war of intervention had ended, went on to build socialism. It was a very complicated affair. The economy was so devastated. The working class almost had ceased to exist. Uh, certain market mechanisms had to be introduced under the new economic policy. But by the end of 27, beginning of 28, the new economic policy was being jettisoned and full-scale reconstruction was taking place in agriculture as well as in industry. The collectivization plan, uh, the campaign, as well as the first five-year plan uh, from 1928 to 1932. And this five-year plan, incidentally, was completed in four years and three, three months. Miraculous by, by any, any, any standards. So the working class proved that the Soviet proletariat proved that the working class can not only destroy the old, but build a new socialist society, society which benefits the vast masses of, peop of, of people, not, not just the privileged. But to, to just take one example that you and Kayla were talking about, the position of women. Now, it's the first time that women in class society got an equal status, not in law, which is much easier to do. You pass a law and that's the end of it and you forget about it. The real equality of women, um, as we have mentioned before, doesn't keep become, uh, come about because a few women reach the top position. They become uh, members of the board of directors of large corporations or become chief executives or financial officers of large corporations. Real liberation or mass of women comes when they are introduced into public service and on an equal basis, which can only take place by socializing the services, which actually are presently and have been for a long time performed by women, i.e. cooking, laundry, looking after the, after the children. So it's only when you create kindergartens, creations, um, cheap dining rooms and, 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 and laundry places. It's only then that women can take part on an equal basis. Uh, because what, what actually enslaves a woman is the fact that she's bound to the four walls of the house doing, the, doing these jobs. Capitalism in its own interest for the sake of profits is forced to take women into public service. Women have been introduced into public service, into factories, etc. It is definitely a liberating uh, fact as a matter of objective observation. But all the same, when the woman does that, she's torn between looking after her children on the one hand and going to work on the other to earn a living. And what we need to do is that women should be able to work. If she has small babies and she goes to work, there should be a kindergarten there. There should be a creche there. And during the day, she can get time off for mothering her children, looking after her children. That's precisely what happened in the Soviet Union. Nothing flamboyant, nothing showy, but nevertheless, which had an extremely beneficial effect on the life, life, life of women. And this, this is exactly the same in various areas, including 
for example, the question of racial discrimination. Nobody dis discriminated against a Kazakh or a Tajik or a Uzbek or a Georgian, you know. Georgian would be difficult with Stalin being <laughs> in, in charge of things, but all the same, you know, people were brought into a position where they enjoyed equal status with, with, the, great, with the great Russians, where women enjoyed equal status with, with men. They could no longer be, be you know, sh shouted at, they could no longer be told to do this, that, that, the other. This does not mean that they did not perform motherly duties. They stopped being, being mothers. They were not like the bourgeois feminists whose idea of liberation is that you don't become a mother. You know, humanity needs mothers as it needs fathers. They have some roles, role, roles to perform. There will be no humanity without mothers. And so you obviously have a responsibility. And this is one thing that women can do, which men cannot do. And that is, um, you know, giving birth to children. But at the same time, Soviet society showed women were capable of doing whatever men were capable of. They drove tractors, they flew aeroplanes, they were engineers, they were doctors, they were teachers, and they occupied all sorts of positions. In the end, the bourgeoisie could only say, Soviet women are everywhere, they're a bit butch. Well, as though being an engineer made a woman butch. It doesn't. It was, she was an intellectually gifted person who was in the business of engineering. You know, or driving a tractor is not necessarily a man's job. Anybody can drive, drive a tractor. It's not something that requires extraordinary uh, skills. Anybody can be trained over a period of two, three months and become a tra tra tractor driver uh, in my youth. There were hardly any, tra any tra tractors in the villages. Now, every village in India, in, in, in Punjab anyway, has a huge number of tractors. Every peasant's boy grows up driving a tractor. So it's something which is e easily done. And the Soviet Union did, did those things, which actually improved the position of women. Caleb. Wow. Well, um, you know, you, when you touched on the industrialization, um, that is a point that I, I often, I recall reading the writings of Anna Louise Strong um, and just, you know, the, the efforts to industrialize the USSR and really just build up the economy. The whole world was just in awe of what happened. And that really, I, I think, you know, 1928 was a pivotal year, right? After the Trotskyites had been defeated, after the Bukharanite right opposition had been defeated, when Stalin's uh, vision of socialism in one country kind of triumphed and they launched the five-year economic plans to industrialize the USSR and sort of rapidly building the country up. Uh, the world was really in awe of, of what happened. And uh, 1929, you had the beginning of the Great Depression uh, in the United States and in the Western world. And so the rest of the world was having a Great Depression and the Soviet Union was just building and building and building. And it was really an inspiration to the world. And people people forget this. We're all constantly told that communism doesn't work. Oh, it never achieved anything. Oh, countries countries have always just been in poverty because of communism. And it's like, it's the contrary. If you look at what happened, I mean, how they, they turned the USSR very quickly into the world's top steel producing country. They built the world's largest uh, hydroelectrical power plant, uh, the Dnieper Dam in Ukraine. Um, they built this country up from nothing. I mean, and, and the details that you read about it, even in bourgeois 
mainstream publications like the New York Times and and they, the whole world was looking at the Soviet Union and saying, how is this possible? How can they rapidly build themselves up so quickly? Um, and how can they have so much economic growth? I mean, it was real economic miracles that were happening. Um, and there's been such an effort to obscure this. Uh, uh, but it is true. I mean, and you look at the details. I mean, the USSR, before the communists came to power, um, you know, it was an agrarian country, large illiteracy, very little electrification. Um, you look at what started in 1928. By 1936, they were a superpower. Uh, they were a, a fully industrialized economic powerhouse. Uh, and that was because of socialism. That was because of central planning. Um, and you know what you said about women uh, and the empowerment of women, that is also very true, right? And you, know, you talk about they had women that were high leaders of the military and women high up in the government and women electrical engineers and women doctors. And, and that was... Very much that was the result of the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, and the achievements were astounding, and the whole world was kind of shaken uh, by what they saw. And efforts to cover this up and obscure this uh, don't change the reality. I mean, you just pull up the numbers. When people say socialism and communism doesn't work, it doesn't lead to countries growing, they're, 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 they're talking about something that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, and we just need to remind people of this as much as possible because this is the justification. Uh, when Bernie Sanders was running, uh, you know, as a kind of just a social democratic candidate in every every debate and every conversation where he's advocating that we have a national health care system in the United States. Oh, you can't do that. The Soviet Union tried that and it didn't work. Well, it actually did work quite well in the Soviet Union. Oh, you know, he wanted to give everyone, you know, college. Oh, you can't do that. Uh, you do that, that. That's you look. The Soviet Union fell. And, and no, the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union had a huge amount of economic success here in New York City. There was a law that was going to be passed when and Mayor Bloomberg, um, you know, Mayor Bloomberg was was arguing against uh, that the city would have to pay every um, every firm that the city contracted would have to pay a certain minimum wage um, that was higher than the regular minimum wage. And New York City's Mayor Bloomberg said he was opposed to it. We, we can't, you know, pay a, a minimum wage to employees at the firms contracted by the city uh, because he said because the Soviet Union. They tried to do things like that and they collapsed, so we can't do it. And it's like this mythology, I call it the myth of the 20th century. This idea that socialism hasn't worked or has failed, this myth is underlying almost everything in U.S. society. We have to face it head on. And, uh, and, and people, you know, the problem, I think, one of the biggest problems in the socialist movement is a failure to take this myth on straight up. You just have to say to people, that's not true. You can't say, well, uh, no, no, you have to just right in the face say, no, that's false. The Soviet Union became a superpower with socialism. China became a superpower with socialism. Cubans live far better than Haitians do, uh, than people all throughout the Caribbean do because of socialism. I mean, socialism has had tremendous successes. It has proved uh, a successful alternative to capitalism. Uh, and and that is that is an established fact. And you know the Russian Revolution was the first example of it. But there have been many countries that, with socialism, with five-year economic planning, uh, with the leadership of a Marxist-Leninist party, have lifted people out of poverty, have eradicated uh, illiteracy, uh, have industrialized their countries, electrified their countries. Socialism clearly works, and we need to fight this mythology head on. Absolutely, absolutely, Caleb, and all of those. Advances you're talking about, <clears throat> sorry, that Hapala's been talking about, you know, we also mustn't forget that everywhere else in the world at the same time was suffering under the Great Depression. You know, the numbers of starving and out of work 
uh, people who were traipsing homeless across the United States while such things were being totally eradicated in the Soviet Union. You know, in, in Britain, we had hunger marches of unemployed men coming down from the north to London saying, you know, give us food. We had a huge unemployed movement being organized with great militancy by the communists because, you know, the world capitalist crisis was so deep and so grave. And the imperialists had no way out of that except for fascism and World War II. The Soviets were totally untouched. Their, their growth charts go like this during the period that everybody else's economy was going like that. You know, and that in itself was such a kind of wake up call to the workers all over the world. And no wonder that our ruling classes were terrified about it. And I really would recommend to people to read some of the eyewitness accounts to what was happening in the Soviet Union at the time. There's some really beautiful ones written and they bring this new society to life like nothing else can really, really doesn't because we, our heads are so filled with lies that we don't realize, even those of us who are socialists or communists or Marxists, we don't realize how we're affected by the blanket of lies and the constant repetition of lies about life in the Soviet Union. So I would recommend a couple, definitely uh, the books by Anna-Louise Strong, in particular one called The Stalin Era. It's quite a short little book, but very inspiring. Uh, there's a book by a guy called Hewlett Johnson called The Socialist Sixth of the World, Really, really fantastic, you know, figures and eyewitness accounts of different aspects of life in that book. Um, and um, Soviet Democracy by Pat Sloan. Again, these really bring to life the new society that was being built and the really human conditions that were allowing people to unleash their potential in a way that's just like a dream for workers right now in the imperialist countries, never mind the oppressed countries. Um, I wanted to come on to the question of how the Soviet Union, uh, Hopal, really created a base for the world revolution. You know, we're often taught, well, the Trotskyists tell us, and our historians and, and bourgeois uh, kind of politicians repeat Trotsky's lies that uh, Trotsky was in favor of world revolution and Stalin was in favor of just keeping the revolution in one country. Some kind of selfishly wanted to hoard socialism. Uh, and this was the diff big difference between them um, and wasn't Stalin mean. Uh, but of course, Stalin, as Lenin before him, talked constantly about the Soviet Union being the motherland for all workers and, and creating a base for the world revolution. And they didn't just say that as words and resolutions. They, they acted on it, didn't they? Oh, absolutely. The Soviet Union did become a base for the proletariat of all countries. It was quite rightly regarded as the motherland of the proletariat of the entire world, and even the motherland of the oppressed peoples of the entire world. Revolutionaries who were persecuted converged in on Moscow, and Moscow assumed the position of the revolutionary center of the world in exactly the same way as Paris had become after the great French, French bourgeois revolution, where every anti-monarchist, every persecuted democrat came to Paris. And Paris was hated. And the Jacobins were hated because they were the mo most radical wing, wing, wing of the bourgeoisie. They didn't stand by ceremony. And they invented wonderful things like tumbrils and guillotines and very quickly disposed of their enemies, didn't really stand for what you call the rule of law and all the rest of it, because the revolution has got its own laws. It is not actually 
abiding by ordinary laws. It is unhindered by these laws. It carries on its remorse, remorseless work. And they disposed of the French monarchy. They disposed of the feudal classes in a way that no other uh, bourgeois revolution in Europe did. It didn't happen in, 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 in England. It didn't happen in many other countries. But the French did in a very thoroughgoing manner. Likewise, the, the Bolsheviks actually created a base where revolutionaries from all over the world came. And precisely for that reason, the name Bolshevik was hated by the bourgeoisie all over the place. There was no sin, there was no crime that they would not pin on the, on the Bolsheviks, from eating babies for breakfast to uh, communalizing women. You're not allowed to marry a woman. Women were just common stock. And, you know, you came in the morning and you queue and you took the woman that was available when your turn, turn came. Very, very crude propaganda. But obviously, you spread it day after day, uh, produce fake pictures, and the, the average idiot begin, begins, to, begins to believe that. But the Soviet Union actually did become, and Soviet Union didn't wish the Russian Revolution to be an isolated affair. It became a center for, as, as Jyotia said, for world revolutionary movement precisely because the perspective of the Bolsheviks, of Lenin, of Stalin, etc., was a world revolutionary perspective. And they were not adventurous. They were not trying to export revolution. But the chances, when the chances came for extending the area of socialism, they did that, as, for example, in the aftermath of the Second World War. Deutscher makes a completely stupid point that after the Second World War, Stalin put into effect Trotsky's theory of socialism in several countries. <laughs> socialism in several countries. The whole point of Trotsky's theory, which perhaps one day we need to discuss separately from this one because it's a topic, topic by itself. The whole point of, of Trotsky's is socialism could not be built. You know, it could not be built in a single country. So when Trotsky was subsequently to talk about Russian Revolution being betrayed by Stalin, well, it's a bit rich coming from a person who thought socialism could not be built. If it couldn't be built, there's nothing to betray. The fact is that it could be built and it was built. Much more, it was built in the most difficult of circumstances. Most bourgeois countries became strong through a number of methods, taking foreign loans, exploiting other countries, colonies, etc., or winning in war and getting reparations. The Russian Revolution did not benefit from the, these. For the obvious reason, they were not exploiting the colonies. For the obvious reason, they did not want to contract uh, usurious uh, loans. They wanted to borrow money, but even on ordinary trade terms, nobody would loan money to them in case it helps them build up. And when the first five-year plan was published, every bourgeois, you know, in a very serious man declared, it's pie in the sky, it can never be fulfilled. You know, it'll end up in smoke. And yet, each quarter as the Soviet Union made progress, and by the end of the five-year plan, when Soviet Union had built huge new enterprises, had renovated the old in in industry, 
had collectivized agriculture and organized ag agriculture on a cooperative basis and the largest agricultural farms, 100,000 hectares, grain, grain factories, which no capitalist country, even the United States could not do because other private uh, owners of land come in between and they can't really manage to create such, such large farms. The Soviet Union did do all that. And by doing so, it showed to the working class that if you come to the power in your countries, you can do even better than us because we were backward when we started. You are in advanced countries. You can do the same much more quickly and perhaps better than, 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 than us. And that's precisely why the Soviet Union welcomed foreign workers' delegations to come to Russia. As, as Stalin said, we are exercising our influence on the world revolutionary movement in these few years of peaceful coexistence through our economic work. It gives tremendous amount of confidence to the working class that the working people are capable of building a new society. You know, one of the endeavors of the bourgeoisie has always been to undermine the confidence of the working class in the possibility and the inevitability of its own victory. And what the Soviet Union did by building socialism was to instill that confidence in the working people. And they wanted to give account of their work, not only to the working class at home, but to the working class from other countries. I mean, they had an extremely humble attitude in this respect. We've got to give account to the British, to the American, to the French, to the German workers. As Stalin said, we are called the shock brigade of the international proletariat. In order to justify that title, we have to prove that we actually are the shock brigade. I built socialism, built industry to prove that we are actually capable of building a new society which will change the face of the earth when exploitation would be a distant past, past memory when people would not understand how did we live under exploitation. It's a peculiar system. You know, it's not something very natural. You know, the average bourgeois thinks that a person is born with nose, ears, you know, et cetera, and a, and a shop or a business. That is not the case. Most of the time in its existence, humanity did not have exploitation. It's only for brief 10,000 years that it has faced exploitation. And the future is not in exploitation, but getting rid of that ex exploitation. And the Soviet Union actually provided that basis. Even if the Soviet Union has collapsed, for the collapse of which we will have to discuss some other time, the reasons, the reasons for it. But the fact is, the Soviet Union shall forever continue to be the eloquent testimony of the strength of socialism, of the strength, strength of century planned uh, uh, economies as opposed to bourgeois economies. People will tell you central planning doesn't work. It's inefficient. Well, what could be more inefficient that regularly you have recurrent crises of overproduction? When millions of workers are thrown out of their jobs, when products are destroyed, when industry actually is shut and nothing takes place because we have produced so much that people are not there to buy it. We go without food 
because there's too much food. We go without housing because there's too much housing. We go without clothing because there's too much clothing. And that is what is terrible about capitalism. And the Soviet Union by 1932, 31, had eliminated unemployment. The first country in the world to actually end unemployment. Unemployment is a scourge around the neck of the working class, it's a millstone around the neck of the working class. You have no work, you have no money to live on, you don't know what the morrow, morrow will be, bring. I mean, Caleb would know he comes from the United States of America during the Depression. There were 40 million unemployed in the Western world, of which 10 million were in the United States. There were people living in card boxes around railway lines. They came to be called Hoover Wells, you know, after President Hoover. That's how they were living. And this is at a time when Soviet Union was building houses for workers, which were airy, which had light, and which had modern facilities. I'm not saying they lived in palaces, no. But compared with what had been there before, they provided decent accommodation, fit for human beings. These were the achievements of the Soviet Union. Caleb. Sure. Well, I think it's really important to talk about how you know, the orientation of the Bolsheviks changed Marxism because Marx thought that the first workers' revolutions would be in the West. He thought they would be in the Western capitalist countries. The idea was that they were the most advanced along the road, right? That, you know, out of feudalism comes capitalism and out of, out of capitalism comes socialism. And since capitalism was the most developed in the United States and Britain and France and Germany, that this is where the revolutions would happen. Uh, but it was Lenin who had the understanding that no, because of imperialism and the emergence of these international monopolies and, and, and big corporations based in the Western countries that are dominating the world and holding back development, that the revolutionary energy would be in the East and it would be from people in the colonized world fighting for their national liberation, uh, that that would be the way that socialism came into the world. And, and that understanding, that, that break with Karl Marx's kind of view that, you know, that the West was the most important, um, you know, that, that break was very, very important. And Trotskyism and, uh, was really a refusal to recognize uh, what Lenin had understood. It was this belief that, well, the theory of permanent revolution, that, well, unless the revolution spreads into the, the West, it doesn't count. Uh, unless it spreads into the Western capitalist countries, it really has no value. It's doomed. It's going to become bureaucratized and reactionary. And there's no hope unless communism spreads to the West. And the crazy thing is we're living now. I mean, it's well over 100 years since the Russian Revolution. We are living now in, in full validation of why Trotsky's theory of permanent revolution was wrong. Uh, as we see Russia and China, both of which, you know, lifted off with a, a socialist revolution emerging to become strong, powerful countries as the West deteriorates into more chaos, uh, dropping li living standards and instability. And this belief that the world is just always going to be centered around the West. And uh, unless Britain and France and Germany and the United States have a socialist revolution, there's no hope. Uh, that's an illusion. Russia and China are rising. Uh, you know, countries throughout the developing world that have aligned with Russia and China are getting stronger. And this belief that the world is always just going to be centered around the United States and the Western capitalist countries, it's just being debunked. Uh, China is rising. Russia is rising. Uh, and there are many countries, the Bolivarian countries of Latin America are getting stronger in alliance with Russia and China. Iran has gotten much stronger. I mean, the level of development there is massive as they align with Russia and China. And that, uh, 
that this illusion uh, that that a lot of you know Trotskyists and and even those who want to cling to what was correct in Marx's time, because that was true in the time that Marx was alive. The working class movement was the most advanced in Germany and in France and in Britain and elsewhere. But the world changed. And because of imperialism and because of the, the development and the stratification of the working class in the imperialist homelands uh, during the 20th century, the development of the aristocracy of labor, the revolutionary energy in the world shifted. However, I would argue that now, as Western capitalism is in a crisis spawned by the computer revolution, and a new crisis of overproduction, uh, and, and we're seeing dropping living standards, now I would argue that the revolutionary energy is once again shifting, and that there is once again now hope for revolutionary uh, resistance within the West, and that, that as living standards are dropping in the imperialist homelands, once again, things are shifting to where there is uh, hope for socialist and revolutionary movements in Western capitalist countries. But the only the only hope for them to have any effect is the orientation of the left needs to change because the organized political left over the course of, of, of the 20th century and especially after the Second World War uh, has developed this orientation of kind of, you know, kind of operating as the uh, as the kind of moralistic uh, critics of imperialism and not as the organizers of the broad masses of people. But now as we're starting to see living standards drop and increasing unemployment and such among the working people in the Western capitalist countries, it's once again time for the, the Marxists and the socialists to step up and become the leaders of the broad masses of working people in the Western countries. So, so the understanding what Lenin put forward and how the Bolshevik revolution was based on this new orientation of understanding what imperialism is, is vital to really understand it, that, that Leninism and Bolshevism broke with, um, broke with the standard Marxist understanding, this theory of imperialism, and this understanding of the importance of national liberation for oppressed nations. This understanding that the Bolsheviks had enabled them to make the revolution, and, and, it, and it changed Marxism very significantly. There's a reason that the Bolshevik revolution happened, and it's because the Bolsheviks had kind of pioneered and made new developments uh, in Marxist theory um, and were not clinging to, to the old ways. Uh, you know, Lenin wrote about the Second International as a stinking corpse, and at the time that the Russian Revolution happened, uh, all of the major socialist and Marxist parties of Europe had sold out the workers and supported World War I and, and sent their own workers off to die. And Rosa Luxemburg took a stand in Germany and uh, Eugene Debs in the United States. But, but overall, social democracy was becoming a bankrupt movement uh, of reformism that was supporting imperialism. But the Bolsheviks had the understanding to break with that uh, and develop a whole new understanding of imperialism. Thanks, Caleb. You've brought us really nicely there to um, the, the next uh, question I was going to ask about, which is the way that, you know, Lenin before World War I was seen by a lot of the established socialist parties in Western Europe as a kind of uh, very um, confrontational character um, and quite sort of extreme left uh, and um, Really, somebody that they found sort of uncomfortable to be around, and and sort of unnecessarily what we would now call bullshit, <laughs> aggravational, you know, and and always picking fights. Oh, he, he needs to be more friendly and, and more conciliatory and stop picking fights with everybody. But of course, you know, practice proved him right on every single one of the points, and he was right to pick the fights he picked. And now we study the fights he picked to understand the importance of those ideological disputes that he was having because they cleared the path for the success of the October Revolution. And having made that revolution, that really, the success of Leninism really inspired a kind of ideological revolution 
across the world and throughout the world socialist movement. And Hapal, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Well, um, it, it takes me to that point. One of the things, the great contribution of, 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 of Lenin was, and really its germ is in Marx, Marx and Engels as well, and that is that the revolutionary struggle of the proletariat for its own emancipation in the centers of imperialism would be a sham and a humbug un unless they were united with the oppressed peoples of, of, of the world. I, there's a world front against imperialism, the proletariat in the imperialist countries and the oppressed peoples in the um, so-called third world countries, if, 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 if you like. Instead of treating them with, with contempt, as was hitherto the practice, even among the labor movement in, in, in European countries, you have to treat them as comrades and friends who are on the same front line in the struggle against imperialism to bring the unity of the proletarian revolutionary movement with the national liberation movement is one of the great contributions of, 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 of Leninism. And that's precisely why the October Revolution resonated with the oppressed peoples, not because they were necessarily socialist, but because they spoke to their needs and to their, uh, to, to, to their uh, desires. If you were even a bourgeois fighting for the independence of India, you had a certain warmth towards the Soviet Union because it was the only country that defended your rights to, to be, to be in, in, independent. And the Soviet Union had to make its progress under not only the barrage of bourgeois propaganda coming from the imperialist countries, but also against the internal enemies, the Trotskyites and Bukharanites. In their different ways, they did not believe socialism could be built. They did not have any confidence and faith in the internal forces in the Soviet Union, in the strength of the working class to build a, build a new society. And so what the building of socialism in the Soviet Union did, as indeed the October Revolution started the process, is that it gave a mortal blow to social democracy. Before the First World War and the October Revolution, the Social Democrats saw that they, they did very little to promote the cause of the proletarian dictatorship nevertheless could flaunt the banner of Marx, Marx, Marxism. But after they came out against the October Revolution, it was impossible for them to pretend that they were on the same side as the revolutionary, revolutionary uh, proletariat. So it actually delivered a mortal blow to social democratism. It pushed social democracy into the camp of the servitors of imperialism, which they were. And the lesson continues to be very important for us. The working class in European countries will not be even within a striking distance of its enemies unless it destroys social democracy. When we say that, people say, so you're in favor of the Tories. No, we're not in favor of the Tories. We're just against two Tory parties. Just because one calls itself Labour and in Caleb's country as the Democratic Party, it doesn't make them socialist. They're as much of imperialists. You only have to see the conduct of American democratic administration from Harry to Truman onwards to, to the present day. They're reactionary as the other party. Sometimes I feel they're more reactionary than, than the other party. They try to hide their reactionary politics under the slogan of rule of law, democracy, human rights, but they're putting the boot into the working class and the oppressed peoples under, the under, under these high fluting 
slogans. And so it's extremely important to understand. And it's difficult to, un to underestimate the importance, uh, the important role played by the Bolshevik Revolution and by the Bolshevik leadership in giving a blow to social democracy. Because Lenin quite rightly said in his preface to imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism, these people are the purveyors of bourgeois ideology among the working class. You know, privileged sections of the working class. Lenin borrowed this term from the American de Leon, and so uh, laborers aristocracy. You know, their style of life, their attitude toward life, their standard of living actually separates them from ordinary, ordinary workers. And as Lenin says, in, in the battle between, he's very fond of using uh, symbolisms from the French Revolution, be, be, between the Jacobin and the Versailles, they would always be on the side of Versailles, either the, the reactionaries. Now you literally have to just, just look, look around what they're trying to do. The English Tories, the British Labour Party, the Republican Party in America, the Democratic Party in America, they are united as one in wanting to oppress their own people at home and wage war against people abroad. Hardly a minute passes without new news which is meant to provoke a war. They find it very difficult to wage this war. They find it very difficult to convince their people it'd be a good idea to have a war. So they're trying to create public opinion. In my view, they will not, will not succeed. And as regards the point of center of revolution, center of revolution does not rest in one place all the time. Like in bourgeois revolutions, at one time it was England and, 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 and Holland. Then it, France became the center of that. And in terms of socialist revolutions, Russia was the center, Europe was the center. Lately, lately it has shifted to other places, but it's not forever. We're not giving up our hope in the European proletariat rising. It will rise. In the end, slogans do not feed anybody. They do not bring any joy to people. People want to find out why is their national health service, for example, in Britain being undermined? Why is it being sold to private interest? Why are there no houses? Is there no shortage of buildings in Britain? No. You could solve the housing problem overnight by billeting working class families in the empty buildings that are lying, lying, lying around. After the collapse of uh, socialism in Eastern Europe, I happened to be in Germany. I was giving lectures, making a presentation of one or two of my books, which had been translated in, in, into German. And I went to the eastern part of the country, uh, to a place like Dre Dre Dresden. And what do you find? There were houses boarded up because they were empty. They couldn't be made use of. And just outside those houses, people sleeping in sleeping bags on the pavements because they were homeless. Can you see the lunacy of the whole thing? That you have homes which are lying empty and you have homeless workers lying on the pavement. And European weather is not very kind to people who sleep outside. It's very cold and it brings death and disease, disease with it. And that's what cap, cap, capitalism does. So the European working class, sooner or later, I hope sooner, is going to understand that. And when that happens, it will actually assume 
its honorable place in the League of World Revolutionary Countries. And when it does, it will probably be able to become the center of world revolution. I've got nothing against Europe being the center of revolution, of uh, center of the world. The question is, what kind of world is it? If it's a proletarian world, if the proletarians of Europe coming to, to, to power actually is helping the peoples in the oppressed countries to liberate themselves and to build their economies, I'm all in favor of the center being in, in, in Europe. And it's only in this way that the center in one place will cease to be the center in one place. There will be revolutionary centers all over the world. Beautiful. Thanks, Rapal. Caleb. Sure. Well, uh, you know, when Lenin was forming the party of new type, and if you read what is to be done, he was building a different kind of organization than the social democrats of Europe and the Marxist movement of Europe. I mean, he broke with with, you know, he, he talked about how the Bolsheviks were not a debating society. Um, and if you read what is to be done, he's cr- complaining about, you know, this, this quote unquote freedom of criticism and how the, the model that these European social democratic parties had was one that allowed them to become controlled by the bourgeoisie. Often their press was not controlled by the party. It was controlled by uh, private individuals who happened to be in the party who had enough money to have a press. Uh, for example, uh, and uh, and in a lot of ways, like the the labor movement, uh, the labor bureaucrats were able to dominate these parties because they were the leaders of of labor unions, so they gained influence. And that 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 by having this kind of loose structure, um, these parties were able to kind of lose their revolutionary energy. But but the idea was the Bolshevik Party was for those who gave the whole of their lives to the revolutionary movement. And, uh, you know, you read some of the attacks on Lenin. They attacked uh, the Bolsheviks and they said, well, he's not forming a party. He's forming a monastic order. Uh, they compared it to like the Jesuits or the uh, the Franciscans or something like that. And nowadays, the language that's that's commonly used to attack, you know, organizations that function this way with democratic centralism, uh, they use words like cult. Uh, that's that's generally the slur that's used. And that's the idea is that that these are not, you know, liberal, open organizations where everything is just kind of up for up for debate and everyone just kind of does what they feel like. No, they're asking people to give the whole of their lives, to live a disciplined life, um, to make sacrifices, uh, to to go along with decisions <laughs> that they themselves not agree with. Uh, you know, the, the uh, understanding of a democratic centralist organization is is that uh, once a decision is made, everyone is obligated to carry it out, whether they agree or not. Mm-hmm. Unity in action. Um, and that, uh, that the you know the Bolshevik form of organi- organization was a break with the the liberal way of organizing, um, and I, I think that people kind of forget that, and that uh, that 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 it developed into uh, the Bolshevik Revolution. And if you want to see the failure of social democracy in the United States, you know, you in Britain, you've had phonies and imperialists speaking in the name of socialism all the time. I think Tony Blair at one point was quoting Marx or something like that. Here in the United States, especially since the end of the Second World War, we haven't had that so much. So when this, we, we call them the squad, right? These, uh, you know, AOC and Ilan Omar and a couple other, these four, four socialist, uh, you know, figures in the Democratic Party were elected. There was so much rejoicing. Oh, we've got socialists in Congress. It's amazing. It's just so amazing. And now, I mean, they've been in for a good four years now. Uh, and they have proved to be just as bad, if not in some cases worse uh, than the rest of the Democratic Party. They are more pro-imperialist. They are they are in favor of, of tearing down and attacking countries. They want the mainstream media to be censored uh, and to silence what they call conspiracy theories, which is questioning 
anything that's said by the mainstream media. Um, they are vicious imperialists. They are not on our side, uh, but yet they speak in the name of socialism. And that was a huge wake-up call for a lot of people about that just because someone calls themselves a socialist, just because someone's critical of capitalism and wants people to have jobs and healthcare, doesn't make them your friend. Um, and that in many ways, they've proven that they don't even believe in the socialist platitudes they claim to believe in. The reformist petty socialism they claim to believe in, they don't even believe in. Uh, when, when you know we're having a pandemic, can you think of a better time to demand health care for the working class? But yet um, they, they refuse to put up a fight in Congress for health care, to put it up to a vote. And then when, you know, serious, serious people who were social Democrats, but just believed in it, you know, put up with this idea, you know, they call force the vote to demand a vote on national health care. Uh, their response was to accuse them of being fascists and accuse them of being Trump supporters and say, oh, if you're demanding, if you're making demands on the squad, you're right wing, you're racist, you're, you're a fascist. And so we're seeing that social democracy is clearly bankrupt. I mean, we're seeing that very, very clearly uh, in the United States. You guys have known that for for decades, you've known that. You've known about the Labor Party and its treachery. But now we're having to learn this all over again. But it's an important moment of awakening uh, where we're seeing that, that social democracy is not our friend. And we're also learning that you do need to build a party of new type um, and that you do need to eventually establish an organization where people give the whole of their lives, where, um, where the party press is not you know, whichever member has the most money and wants to start their own press and therefore has the influence, but rather building a, a disciplined working class democratic centralist combat organization is what is ultimately necessary if you're going to defeat the imperialists. Uh, that is, we're learning that again here in the United States. And as we see this kind of blossom of suddenly now socialism is up for discussion, we're seeing, uh, we're learning these old lessons once again, I would say. Thanks, Caleb. Um, um, sorry, Hapal, I was going to say we've been talking for quite a while and I think we're going to come back to the general topic of October with a slightly different focus on another day. Uh, is there something that you would like to say before we kind of wrap up? Just very quickly, um, uh, Caleb mentioned in his uh, um, last contribution, Lenin's, Lenin's What Is To Be Done. If one wanted to sum up Lenin's What Is To Be Done, it simply can be summed up in one single short sentence. Without a revolutionary theory, there can be no revolutionary movement. And what the Western proletariat has done, and since the ravages of Christian revisionism, is given up on theory. You know, Everything else is fine. That's practical. What you're doing is just theory. Pure theory is just uh, airy-fairy nonsense, and you want to give it up. The old communists read Capital, three volumes. They read serious uh, books. They read Engels' Anti-During. They read all sorts of, so, sorts of material. These days, youngsters do not do that. If we want to build a movement, I'm afraid we're 100 years behind Bolsheviks. We've got to start anew. It's better to start anew now than wait for another 50 years and learn the same lesson. And perhaps one day, um, if you two are inclined to do it, we can just devote the whole session to discussing Lenin's what is to be done or what is to be done and one step forward, two steps back. These are the building blocks of revolutionary movement the importance of revolutionary theory and the importance of a working class organization without which the working class has, has nothing. Um, so I've taken too much of your time. I better be quiet. Thank you. I mean, I'm sure we are going to come back to all of these really important points again. I think it's a really good note to end on to remind people what it is we're doing here. We're not here to provide 
content for people's amusement who are sitting on YouTube. We are putting these books up to try to do our part in educating the movement, in helping our fellow workers to understand the significance of scientific socialism, which is as a weapon, as a guide to action, as our enlightenment, as our strength in being able to organize ourselves and orient our organization, orient our practical activity so that we too can be successful, so that socialism is not nice stories of the past. And I could listen to those stories forever. But the reason I can listen to them and feel so inspired by them is because I don't just hear nice stories of what people once did. I see visions of our future. I understand that October didn't die uh, with the collapse of the Soviet Union 30 years ago. October lives. It lives in the future. It lives with all of us. It lives with humanity. October began the next phase of history, and it's our job to make sure that phase is carried to completion and socialism frees all of humanity uh, from its present troubles. So thank you once again to both of you. Uh, for today's really lovely discussion. I look forward to the next one. Uh, thank you to everyone uh, who's watching or listening. Alal salam to all of you. Until next time. Thank you. Thank you.